The Real Estate Sessions is brought to you by FIRST. FIRST knows that a real estate professional's most valuable asset is their relationships. A strong personal network is the moat that can guard against any industry disruption. But there is never enough time to nurture your network the way you want to. FIRST powers top agents with artificial intelligence to spotlight the people who are most likely to sell. This brings focus and attention to make important connections when it matters most. Learn more and request a free demo at first.io. If I'm required by the state to do so many hours to keep my license active, I'm going to do those hours and make them mean something. And so education's always been extremely important. If you're not, if you're not learning, you're dying as far as I'm concerned. So. Welcome to the Real Estate Sessions podcast where industry leaders share their stories and offer tips and advice for real estate professionals. Now your host, Bill Rissa of Fidelity National Title in Tampa, Florida. Hi, everybody, and welcome to episode 142 of the Real Estate Sessions podcast. Thank you so much for tuning in. Thank you so much for, for finding us and telling a friend and I really appreciate it if you leave a rating or a review afterwards. It helps the show grow, and it's a lot of fun to, as we approach three years now uh, with the podcast, to kind of keep talking to interesting people in our business doing really cool things. And that's exactly what I've got today. I'm going to be talking to Eric Elzey, who's with Jones & Company Realty down in Cape Coral, Florida. Um, but he's got a very interesting story, not just about you know the the real estate side of things, but he's a little bit of a... I don't want to call him an ex gamer extreme kind of guy, but I think I think he'll 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 expound on that. So, Eric, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Bill. I really appreciate having me on here. Yeah. So I know of, you know from looking up a little bit about you that you grew up in a little town in Illinois, just south of St. Louis, uh, Waterloo. Correct. That is right. Yeah. Absolutely. Tell us a few things we we should know about Waterloo, Illinois. Well, um, it's a small farming community, uh, about 30 minutes from downtown St. Louis. So it's kind of like growing up in the best of both worlds, uh, mostly settled by German immigrants. There were probably only about 3,500 people in my town. Not, we didn't even have a stoplight when I was uh, growing up. And But you, I, I grew up across the street from a cornfield, but you could literally be in downtown in 30 minutes. So was a great place to grow up. We had basically no crime. Uh, I didn't even have a key to my house the entire time I was growing up because the doors were never locked. And everybody knew each other and looked out for each other and just a just a wonderful place to grow But you were right there close enough to the city where you'd have all uh, those amenities and things as well. So the yeah. town's grown quite a bit since then. They're probably around 10 or 11,000. Again, it's a you're either in agriculture or or it's a bedroom community and you work in, in St. Louis. So, um, yeah, it's a great town. I, I miss it. I'd probably still be there, except I just can't do winter anymore. So. <laughs> like many people down here in Florida. <laughs> the, exactly. The driving, the driving force of those, those rough winters. Yeah. So you're, I'm, I'm thinking St. Louis is uh, in Missouri. It's farther, way south of the lake and, and the whole Chicagoland area, right? Correct. Um, about five hours south of Chicago by car. Yeah, so I've just got to guess. I, you know, I know you're a you're a sports guy. Uh, it's got to be Cardinals, not Cubs, because I, I think people would say, "Oh, you're from Illinois, you got to love the Cubs." But my guess is you're a St. Louis guy, right? 
Yeah, I'm, a, I'm definitely a St. Louis guy. Cardinals Cardinals baseball is like a religion in St. Louis. Uh, I grew up going to the ballpark. Um, some of my fondest memories as a child being there watching people like Ozzie Smith and Willie McGee. Um, I luckily grew up in a great time for Cardinals baseball. Um, well, it, most of the time has actually been really good for Cardinals baseball. Only the only the New York Yankees have won more World Series championships than uh, than the St. Louis Cardinals. So it's been a successful franchise for a long, long time. But they were in the World Series, I want to say four different times in the 1980s and won a couple of them. So it was a it was a good time to uh, to grow up watching baseball, especially in St. Louis. You mentioned Ozzie Smith. So I grew up in San Diego when we had we had Ozzie the first six or seven years. <laughs> And then you yeah. got him, and he took off. Yep, that's great. He he, uh, he did got, the wizard. Yeah, we got Gary Templeton, who flipped off the crowd. It was awesome. It was a great trade off. So. <laughs> yeah, we we definitely came out ahead on that deal. Yeah, you did. So. Yeah, no, Tepe was a nice guy. He he was he he did a lot of good things for the Padres as well. But uh, yeah, I, like I grew up in San Diego. We went to two World Series in my time there. Um, one one World Series game. So. Yeah, it's a different world. Yeah, uh, so I, I got to ask you this: There's definitely a you guys beat us last night, though. I'll, I'll well, tell you that. There you go. <laughs> we got that going. For you. <laughs> there's a huge rivalry between Cardinals and Cubs, and it's you know there's tons of Cubs fans will try and get to a Cardinals game and vice versa up at Wrigley. But so because you have seven or eight championships already, did you feel a little happy for the Cubs when they got their first one, or is it such a rivalry you yep. not feel happy for them? <laughs> No, it is probably the friendliest rivalry in okay. all of sports. Um, we host Cubs fans at Bush Stadium and they host us at Wrigley. And um, it's just it, it's just a good rivalry that's been going on for so long. Um, it's friendly. Uh, we get along. So, yeah, I, I was rooting for the Cubs. In that. I mean, if it would have been the, them and the Cardinals playing – in the national championship series, yeah. I absolutely be Cardinals rooting for the Cardinals. But when they made it to the World Series, I was I was pulling for them. So that's good. It's good to hear. I like that because it's uh there are many rivalries that are not like that. <clears throat> They're a little hardcore. Where like I, <laughs> so nice to have the uh, it's that Midwestern thing. It's good. I've talked to tons of people on this podcast, and I always like to find out as they're growing up if if real estate was even something you would you thought about as a career. How about you? When you were in high school, was it was it on your radar? Not even remotely. Okay. Ne- never never considered it once. What what so, were you going to be in high school? What was your passion? Well, the only thing I wanted to be was a NASCAR driver. Um, nice. I love racing. Was a huge fan and um, was doing everything I could to get into stock car racing. Um, I ended up going to Nashville Auto Diesel College in Tennessee. A, because I figured I needed to do something after high school, uh, and B, because I really just wanted to learn everything I could about cars just to make me a better mechanic. And I mean, all I did when I was a, a high school kid after school was wrench on cars, work on cars. That was my ambition to be a NASCAR driver. Real estate was nowhere uh, on my radar whatsoever. I'm going to guess that around Waterloo, there probably are a ton of little sprint car tracks or short, you know, half mile ovals and stuff. Was there, is it, I mean, there was, it's such a a big deal in that part of the country, right? 
It, it really is. Uh, and most of the tracks in the Midwest are dirt tracks. Right. Um, so you do get a lot of the sprint cars, I mean, all over the Midwest from Indiana, all the way through Missouri, Iowa, Illinois. Uh, in fact, Kenny Schrader, who is a big, big NASCAR driver for years and years, um, he owned the track right across the river in a little town called Peavley, Missouri. And this guy probably raced 300 and something nights a year. If he wasn't racing NASCAR on Sunday, he'd be racing some other kind of series somewhere around the country. Yeah. Uh, and so he really supported racing around the St. Louis area. Uh, Rusty Wallace and that whole family was all from St. Louis. So we grew up watching all those guys. More recently, Jamie McMurray and Carl Edwards are both from Missouri. Just got to see those guys run when they were younger. Right. So it was a really cool place to uh, grow up if you were into racing. Was Rusty Wallace in the Miller Light car back in the day? He was. Yeah. He sure was. Yeah. I, I, He's I, probably got the most famous wreck ever filmed on television. Is that Miller Genuine Draft, the black and gold card, rolling about 14 times right. on at Talladega. And it's just like one of the ESPN highlights from racing every time they do. It's always highlight. It's always going to be shown. Yeah. Yeah. I follow NASCAR yeah. a little bit. I, I'm, um, you know, not, not, not a total gearhead, but, you know, I've been to a bunch of races in Phoenix. I got, I was lucky enough to get a lot of hot passes and be in the pits during the race. And that's like a whole nother level of, oh my gosh, you know, that yep. you get a sense of the, which is what's going on during a race. It's pretty, pretty cool. So you, it's, it's amazing. You still, TV so, does not do it justice. No. If you get an opportunity to go to a race, even if you're not a huge racing fan, if you get an opportunity to go to a race, television just does not do it justice. The no. sounds and the smells and the, all the, just the power and just watching those cars, how fast they're actually going. You can't even tell on, you can't tell on TV. No. Even no. remotely how fast they're moving. My first race was in California, uh, Fontana. Um, my son was a That's Jeff Gordon. A super fast track. Yeah. My son's a, at the time was six or seven and big Jeff Gordon fan and Jeff won the race. And uh, I, I'll never forget 43 cars coming down to the starting line. Your feels like your heart's going to just pound out of your chest. I mean, it's such a feeling. <laughs> it's pretty amazing. It is amazing. It is amazing. Absolutely. Yeah. So somehow you got to get from, you, you know, you went to school down in Nashville. And you live up in, you know, Illinois, right on the Mississippi River. How do you end up on the Gulf Coast? So, I guess long story short, I'll try to make it short. Um, I had three or four really good job offers coming out of school to be a mechanic. Um, none of them were in NASCAR. So, a friend's dad, who was kind of like a father figure to me as well, was in the car business. And he said, uh, he's like, Eric, why don't you sell cars instead of working in the, working on them in the back? He's like, you're not going to be happy back there working on other people's Chevy Cavaliers and stuff. And uh, I'd never thought about it. So I applied for a job at a Ford Lincoln Mercury dealership, got hired, and the uh, rest is history. By the time I was 24, I was running a Chevrolet dealership in Illinois and got in the car business. So uh, how it transition or how I found out about Southwest Florida, uh, two guys I worked with at a Chevy dealership in St. Louis uh, had both bought places down here in Bonita Springs. And, you know, they did it for an investment and also so they had a place to vacation to. And I ended up coming down here for a week and staying at one of them and just absolutely fell in love with the area. 
I was always telling people I'm going to retire to Southwest Florida. And, uh, I was working for a Chevy dealer dealer and we're still good friends to this day, but we decided, uh, to shake hands and part as friends and not work together anymore. And I probably could have had a job at 15 different places around St. Louis the very next day. But, um, I was like, you know, I can work anywhere. Why not? Why not just move to Southwest Florida now? And uh, so at 26 years old, I did. I moved down here with no job, <laughs> found an apartment online for a short-term rental because I knew I was going to buy a place as soon as I figured out exactly where I wanted to be. And the uh, rest is history. I've been down here since 2004. So That's great. Absolutely yeah. love it. Best, best move of my life. Went yeah. to the beach every day for 10 days. <laughs> and then after 10 days, I'm like, you know, I probably should start at least looking for a job. So yeah, exactly. the, the beach will always, so I did. Be there, you know, and that's the good part about living yeah. here is you can always, whenever you feel like it, <laughs> go put your toes in the sand. Right. So it's perfect. Absolutely. So, Absolutely. What, so somehow we have to transition out of the car business into real estate. How does that happen? So I was working for DeVoe Buick Pontiac GMC Hummer in 2004 and but obviously the real estate boom was really getting going down here and uh, ended up selling a Hummer to a builder in Cape Coral. And it, we just completely hit it off. Uh, and actually he's still one of my best friends to this day. And he, as soon as the deal was done, he's like, Eric, you really should come start selling homes for me. Uh, and I said, well, I'll come check it out. So I went by his model home and, saw his operation and that's, that's how I got into real estate. You're not in the home building side now. And so let's talk about that transition. Cause somehow you got to get into, I think it's called general real estate, right? When you're a home builder. In the, yeah. So how do you get Correct. to residential general? real estate? Well, so technically when I was working for him, um, I was selling construction because we weren't selling properties. Yeah. And so when the construction business kind of died in 2007, um, luckily I had been doing a lot of work with a company in Mississippi and Louisiana after Hurricane Katrina. So we had been purchasing properties and rehabbing them, everything from single family homes to a 36 unit apartment complex to a commercial building. Um, we had also bought, oh, probably something like 500 lots and we're putting um, inexpensive affordable housing on them. So I actually basically lived up there in the Mississippi, Louisiana, Gulf Coast and just flew back and forth every couple of weeks down here to Florida. So that, that kept me really busy for a couple of years when nothing was going on down in this market in Southwest Florida. And about the time all the government incentives and things started drying up in Mississippi and Louisiana. Um, things started picking back up down here. So I ended up getting into general real estate in 2009, doing a lot of short sales, foreclosures, all of that distressed property sale stuff. Um, so was actually quite lucky with timing. Just things really picked up. A, a lot of people don't realize this, but uh, most homes we ever sold in Lee County during the boom was a little over 12,000. And uh, just single family homes in 2009 in Lee County, we sold 16,885. Just single family homes. That doesn't include condos or anything else. 
um, through our MLS. So those were all realtor sales. And so we just crushed the record, but we were having a bargain basement sale here in Lee County. Yep. Uh, the median home sale price in 2007 was somewhere, you know, about 270, 280. And, uh, the median home sale price in 2009 was $84,900. That's so that was a lot of having a fire sale. Yeah. It sounds a lot like Phoenix where people with cash were ruling the day they could come in and uh, really pick up some, you know, amazing deals. And then they're reaping the uh, rewards uh, even today from some of those, some of the ability to purchase at that time. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. And that, that was one of the great things about that time is because you get a deal accepted, you know, write a contract and it would close in two weeks. I mean, just super because everything was cash. Yeah. So no appraisal, no, I mean, it's just people just wiring the money for closing and that was pretty much it. It was a, we were moving, moving quick in those days. So it was a, it was a lot of fun. And now we're back to kind of a normal market with normal growth and our, our prices are not back up to where they were in 2006 and seven, but they've rebounded a lot. And um, so it's, it's back to, back to reality now. Yeah. And, and having that education you got back in, you know, the, the dark days, we'll call them, you, you have this, you have this knowledge, you know, you're, you're uh, it's, it's definitely a valuable thing. And, and I, you know, looking at your, um, your career, you know, you're, you really, you take education seriously. I, I know you're a GRI, you're a CRS, you got your broker's license because you've, you've managed an office here. Talk about the importance of education for you. I, I think it's extremely important. Um, I learn something new all the time. Um, I know, unfortunately, a lot of people just go do their continuing education hours just to satisfy their, uh, satisfy the requirement for their license for the state. And I've never, never wanted to do that. If I'm going to take a class, I want it to count towards something. So I take classes that are going to count towards um, a designation or I'm going to learn something new. And uh, GRI was huge for me. Um, And then CRS was almost an honor to get that. I've been told by people, it's like having a master's degree in real estate and, uh, you know, and I just, like I said, if I, if I'm required by the state to do so many hours to keep my license active, I'm going to do those hours and make them mean something. And so education's always been extremely important. If you're not, if you're not learning, you're dying as far as I'm concerned. So. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I, I'm taking that to heart. <laughs> I, I like to call myself a lifelong learner and it, it does make things better. I'll tell you another thing you do very well. You and a lot of realtors have this volunteerism built into them because if you're a part of the association and all these things, right? But but you've taken this to another level. You you uh, giving back to your community is a big part of who you are. I know you're you're in the leadership for your Rotary chapter in Cape Coral. I'm I was introduced to Rotary about three or four years ago. I did some presentations for a for pet training in Arizona, which is leader incoming leadership, right? Yeah, PET stands for President-Elect Training Seminar. Right. So you're actually training the incoming presidents for the next Rotary year, which is what I am currently the president of the Cape Coral Rotary Club. Okay. And uh, so what you were doing was uh, was a amazing training for uh, for the future leaders of their clubs. That right. was awesome. 
let's talk, you know, and I think most people don't really get a grip on what Rotary is because you just think of Lions Club and Kiwanis and other service organizations. Uh, it, it's, first of all, it's over 100 years old. And I know it's got an extreme focus on service above self. And it's really uh, non-denominational. There's no ties to, it's just really about how can we, how can we make our community better, right? So let's talk about, let's be specific with Cape Coral. Tell me, tell me some of the projects you're working on um, this year in your chapter. Okay, well, our crown jewel is always Rotary Park, which is an uh, enormous park here in South Cape Coral. We spend a lot of money uh, keeping it up and maintaining it. Um, we created it and gave it to the city. Uh, so that's one of our big projects. But right now we're in the process of building a community garden. Uh, one of the projects that I was most proud about this year, uh, we did in conjunction with Keep Lee County Beautiful. Um, our Rotary International president, Ian Risley, who's from Australia, his every year a president picks picks something that's their their uh, I guess project, something they want to accomplish during their year. And his was he tasked every Rotary club in the world to plant a tree for every member of their club. So that would be roughly about 1.2 million new trees planted on the face of the earth wow. around, around the world. Uh, our club went one step above that, or maybe several steps above that. And we ended up planting about 17,000 mangrove trees uh, along the uh, Spreader Canal and Matlache Pass. Uh, and it super important project because they were they had been damaged in those areas from the tornadoes we had here in Cape Coral a couple of years ago, and mangrove trees provide natural habitat for wildlife, birds and fish, things like that. Um, but they also prevent erosion um, and improve water quality. And so it's just a, it was an awesome environmental project that we did, and uh, so I'm really proud of that one. In addition, Rotary gives to a lot of other charities. Uh, we do scholarships for schools. Um, so we do a lot here in our community. Yeah. I, I tell you right now, if you're listening to the podcast, go, go check out Rotary International. They have a, a great Facebook business page and wonderful videos that talk about what they do on an international level. But yeah, you know, I guarantee you, you don't have to go very far to find a Rotarian and, <laughs> and uh, ask them about what they do. It's, it's a very, uh, very cool, very cool group of people. I just, you know, hats off to you for that. I love it. It's a passion of mine. This has been a huge honor for me to that they uh, selected me to be president of the club this year, and um, it's been a very fulfilling and rewarding year. And um, looking forward to the, the next adventure. Okay, great segue there, Eric. Because <laughs> speaking of adventures, first of all, you 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 ride. You're a bike rider. Um, you like driving race cars. You you know you. You're a pretty out there kind of a guy. You like you like experiencing life, adventure, and you're you're able to combine this passion for the outdoors and adventure with a great opportunity to raise some money for a really important charity called Shelterbox. So I, I want to kind of really just turn over the show to you at this time. And first of all, tell me all about Shelterbox and what they do. And second, what does the number two thousand five hundred and fifty-two mean to you? So I'll let you run with that. <laughs> well, uh, so Shelterbox is an international disaster relief charity, and we provide life-saving equipment after 
natural disasters and, and other really man-made caused disasters um, around the world. We pre preposition boxes of aid, um, which can include things like tents, cooking equipment, mosquito nets, water purification systems, blankets, ground mats, um, solar lighting, things that you would need to survive. Um, we've also got shelter repair kits to provide, uh, uh, if your home's not completely destroyed from a disaster, then maybe a repair kit would be good enough to fix it. So we pre-position this aid at seven different places around the world so that we can deploy rapidly after a disaster strikes. We have an operations center based in the UK that monitors situations 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Um, just to give you a few examples, when Hurricane Katrina struck, we were actually in there on the ground handing out aid before the National Guard made it in there. Um, we were in Haiti at the day after the earthquake struck. Um, one of the things that I really love about this organization is that we always send our aid in with our own specially trained people. They're called special response team members. And so they can make sure that that aid gets to the people who actually need it, make, make sure it gets cleared through customs, make sure um, those with the most need need it. Um, to give you an example, uh, the first tents that we got into Nepal after the earthquakes there, um, they set them up for doctors to use as triage centers and do surgeries and amputations and things like that because the hospitals were completely destroyed. Um, so it's just a really awesome organization. Uh, another thing I'm really proud of is that we have the highest rating that you can get from Charity Navigator. Um, there's only probably about six paid staff in the United States. Everybody else is a volunteer and we have a great, great group of volunteers. So, um, so that organization is really a passion of mine. Um, some of it's I've actually gotten to meet beneficiaries of this aid who couldn't believe that uh, people halfway across the world cared about them that much that they donated their time and their and their money and energy in making sure that uh, they were taken care of on their absolute worst day ever. And uh, so it's just, it's really been moving for me. Um, we're affiliated with Rotary to the extent that we're Rotary International's global project partner for disaster relief. Um, we, we were the idea and created by a Rotarian in the UK. So the number 2,552, I'll go into that. Um, I'm going to canoe down the entire Mississippi River starting in Lake Itasca in Minnesota, at Lake Itasca in Minnesota, all the way to mile marker zero, which is south of New Orleans. And uh, the plaque at the uh, official headwaters, the official beginning of the Mississippi River, states that uh, from there, there it's 2,552 miles to the Gulf of Mexico. So I was going to do this trip this year um, celebrating my 40th birthday. Uh, I was actually going to leave in about a week. Uh, and about four years ago, the uh, leaders at the Kiko Rotary Club came to me and asked me um, if I'd be willing to postpone that trip for uh, about a month and a half so that uh, because they wanted to put me in line to be president. And um, 
So I agreed. So now I'm going to be leaving on this adventure on July 7th. But I thought, I'm going to be doing this. It's going to be really cool. I've got the opportunity to do something good. Why not tie it in with a charity that really that I'm really passionate about? So uh, I'm going to use this trip to raise awareness and money and stuff for uh, for Shelterbox USA. So I'm uh, really excited about it. It's coming up, uh, coming up quick. Less than 60 days away. So. so how long how long will this take? Well, so I could do it a whole lot faster, um, but I'm going to do it in exactly 90 days. And the reason um, it's going to be 90 days is because scientists say that it takes a drop of rainwater 90 days to get from the headwaters of the Mississippi all the way to the Gulf of Mexico. So we're going to tie it in a little bit with um, water quality and things like that. A lot of people don't realize, but more people die after uh, after a natural disaster from things like poor sanitation and disease and poor water quality than actually from the event in a lot of cases. And so we're going to do it in exactly 90 days and I'm going to be stopping and giving presentations and raising awareness all the way down the river. Um, the other kind of interesting thing is uh, this is the 25 year anniversary of the great flood of 93. And that was the most devastating flood that the United States ever had. Um, and a lot of people don't realize this because the big events like earthquakes in Nepal and the Indian Ocean tsunami, um, the earthquake in Haiti, those kind of things, Hurricane Katrina and stuff, those make big national news. But Shelterbox actually deploys to more floods than any other type of disaster. Sometimes we're deploying to a flood in a remote village out in the middle of nowhere in Peru, and it never even makes the paper, but we're there. And so, so just to raise awareness about flooding and, and remember the flood in 93, um, Waterloo, my hometown, is one town over from a town called Valmeyer, Illinois. And Valmeyer, Illinois was completely wiped off the map um, during the flood in 93. They actually had to move the whole town up about I don't know a mile or two on top of the bluff because they were in the Mississippi River bottom, moved the entire town on top of the bluff so it would never flood again. Um, those of you who remember uh, the news coverage, one of the most memorable uh, pieces of coverage is an entire farmhouse, a big two-story white farmhouse, the entire thing just getting pushed completely down the river. Uh, during that flood, it was all over the evening news. Let me ask you this, Eric how how can people help if they want to help with this project? Where should they go? We'll put all the uh, details in the notes for the show, but tell us how we can help. Absolutely. So you can go to our website, which is MississippiExpedition dot com. Um, you can like our Facebook and Instagram. Uh, I've got a great team uh, with Shelterbox handling social media things like that. Um, there's places to donate on there. There's places to request a presentation. Uh, there'll be video uploads and blog posts and you'll be able to track my progress. So it, it, it should be quite fun. So I, I encourage everybody to, you know, like our Facebook page and follow our blog and you'll be getting some really fun information for about three months this summer. 
if you're listening to this episode, you can go to real estate sessions, therealestatesessions.com, and uh, in the show notes, you'll have all the information, all the links. I'll get everything in there so that we're aware uh, how to, how we can be a part of this as well with you. That's cool. Well, Eric, I've, I've had Great. you here like the half hour I asked of your time. So let me let me ask you the same question I've closed every episode with because. And I know you'll you'll have an answer here. I, mean, I know you've you've managed an operation at Jones and Company, so you've been a part of bringing in new agents. But if you had one piece of advice you could give to a new agent just getting started in the business, what would it be? Well, I interviewed a lot of our new agents, and the common theme that I would hear as to why people got into real estate was they wanted something that was flexible. And I would kind of chuckle to myself and I would say, well, you pick the right, right business because flexibility is so important in this, in this industry. If you have a customer call you at nine o'clock at night and they say they want to see a house, you better be able to drop what you're doing and go show them that house or they'll find somebody that will. Um, you know, if you've got plans for the weekend and a new listing hits the market, you better be flexible and be able to show those people that house because this is a people business. And in this day and age, people want instant gratification, whether it's through responding to phone calls, text messages, emails, you have to be on top of this business and you need to, you as the agent need to be flexible for your customers. So follow up is extremely important. Keeping people, keeping that constant communication and then really treating this like a business and not just a job. This is your business and you're going to get out of it what you put into it. Again, agents constantly saying they wanted something flexible. Well, you need to treat this like a business because if you don't, somebody else will do it for your customer. So that would be my advice. You mean this isn't a part-time gig where you make tons of money? Isn't that what they mean by flexible? (laughs) Uh, I think HGTV's got people thinking that that's the case, but it is it is absolutely not. I was just in Asia last, not last month, March, toward the end of March, for three weeks. Um, I think my cell phone bill was several hundred dollars, but I was returning, I was getting up at four o'clock in the morning Asia time in Hong Kong and Vietnam and stuff so that I could return phone calls and customer or emails to customers, even though I was out of the country. That's that's the extent of work that people need to put into this if they're really going to truly serve their customers properly. Right. You got to do what you got to do. Right. Eric, if somebody wants to reach out to you, what's the best way for them to get in touch with you? My email address is my first and last name, which is E-R-I-K-E-L-S-E-A at gmail.com. And my cell phone number is 239-405-4063. I'd be happy to answer any questions or tell people about uh, the trip or real estate or whatever, whatever they need. I'm here to serve. So Awesome. Eric, thank you so much for your time. It, it really was a pleasure and an honor meeting you, uh, you know, when we, we got together a few months ago in, in down in Fort Myers. And I love watching what you're doing and where you're headed. And, and, and best of luck and be really careful. Be safe. Uh, head on a swivel. I'm just guessing there's boats and stuff that you got to watch out for. <laughs> Be careful. And, yeah, uh, it's pretty big. Those tugboats don't uh, don't turn on a dime, so you right. really got to watch them. Yeah, we'll have fun, and we'll we're we'll, we're looking forward to watching you as you as you uh, start your journey. Awesome. Well, I appreciate it, Bill. Thanks, and have a great day.